Good afternoon, everyone. It's a mass stand. Uh, so it's, it's really a privilege to be able to come and speak here and, and preach through the series of Eat This Book. And uh, Grant did a, a great introduction to the series last week, just uh, encouraging us both to eat properly um, and also to drink water, not coffee, first thing in the morning. I felt convicted about that, so... Now I have a glass of water, and then I'm like, I've done it, coffee. Thank you. Um, and, uh, but also to eat the scriptures as the most important thing that we eat, to get the Word of God into us. And I am doing the second part, which is I want to look at, a little bit at the idea of how the scriptures influences our spirituality or how we are formed spiritually by the the scriptures. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a passage from Nehemiah 8, and then we'll get into uh, the sermon from then. So Nehemiah 8 verse 2 says this, So on the first day of the seventh month, of the, seventh month the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattatiah, Shema, Anan. Aniah, Uri, Hilkai, and Masai. And if I've got any of those pronounce him wrong, I apologize. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkija, Hashem, Hashbadana. There's a name for your kids. Zechariah and Mishalem. Israel opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, their great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah. Yes. I'll carry on. Instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. I just want to jump ahead so that we don't go through the whole, have to rush through the chapter. But in verse 17, it says, the whole company that had returned from the exile built temporary shelters. They're now responding to the words that they've read and heard, and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Israel read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. And uh, so, you know, Every time we gather here, we probably all are in slightly different spaces. I think some of us may have had a good week. Some of us may have had a bad week. Uh, some of us may be feeling very grateful about our lives right now. And some of us may be struggling with where we're at. 
And, uh, you know, the challenge of preaching every week, as, as Grant will know, is the challenge of trying to reach every person and for every person to hear and to be able to engage with God through the sermon. And so part of my challenge is knowing this, but I think one of the things, just to be right up front, is that today maybe what I'm going to say is not going to inspire you. Maybe it's not going to give you a little bit more energy for the week. But I think what I want to do this evening is I want to try and provoke your thinking. I want to challenge your paradigm of how you live a spiritually healthy life. Um, and I want to do that through this passage and kind of looking at the, the Bible and the meaning of the Bible to God's people. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to live a spiritually, spiritually healthy life. I want to live with a vibrant spirituality. Like, that is important to me. And somehow, um, all of a sudden, probably in the last five to ten years, spirituality has become hip again. Um, if you've read any of the big historian um, philosopher Yuval Noah Harari's books, you'll you, probably notice that he has said religion is dead, but spirituality is very much alive. And uh, I, I don't agree with uh, Yuval. He's, a, he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, but he believes in spirituality. He believes in the importance of people answering big questions and engaging with the big, meaningful aspects of life. And so you're starting to see, I don't know if uh, you see this, I, I see this if you scroll through TikTok or Reels or watch YouTube, what has become popular is like people making videos about their morning routines and the things that they do. And so I was looking at some of the morning routines and people like Oprah, what does she do? For 20 minutes a day, every morning, she meditates. She wants to engage in her spiritual life. As she says, Jennifer Aniston does 20 minutes a day. Then you've got the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. He spends an hour every morning, the first thing he does every morning, meditating. Tony Robbins uh, drinks his own Kool-Aid, and he spends an hour in self-visualization and motivation. I'm like, what does that sound like? It's Tony Robbins. He's got his own voice in the mirror. Like, <laughs> you are great. Yes, you are. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But spirituality is, it's a hot topic. Engaging with important, meaningful things is important to us. We want to live a good life in, in many ways. We want to engage with meaningful things. We want to have an ordered and, uh, uh, life. We want to have a life that is filled with peace and joy. And uh, in some ways, we hear that that happens through finding your authentic self, it happens through finding your own truth. Uh, maybe you've heard some of these kind of phrases. And, uh, and so people pursue that in meditation or other means. But when we talk about spirituality as Christians, what are we talking about? And I think the, the thing that we're talking about most is this idea that Paul talks about, is that God's aim for you and I, as followers of Jesus, as people who have given our lives to Christ, his aim for you and I is that we would become like Jesus. 
that God is more and more through our journey of getting to know Him, through our journey of, uh, of discipleship, is that He is shaping us more and more, not into our most authentic selves, but into becoming like Christ. He is shaping us according to His will and His plan. But how does that idea, how does spiritual formation, how does this process of change, how does this process of us becoming more and more like Jesus happen? And uh, that is the question I want to try and answer this evening. And to do that, I want to look at something of what I call the Ezra-Elijah dilemma. And I think it's the dilemma that a lot of us face as people who want to follow God. So Elijah, uh, if uh, you've read the Old Testament, at some point you would get to this man called Elijah. And Elijah is like a superhero in the Old Testament. I mean, when, when I first gave my life to God and I started reading the scriptures seriously, I got to this passage on Elijah and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is like Superman times 10. Like, he is a superhero. Um, I so loved the story of Elijah that the very first time I ever preached in church on, on a Sunday, I preached on 1 Kings 18, which is this passage of Elijah. And basically what happens in this passage is Elijah is the lone prophet of God in Israel at the time. He's, he's the lone. There are no more prophets of God in that time, in that era. And he's facing 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, so foreign gods at that time. And he's having a showdown with them. It's him, one guy, versus 850 people who disagree with them. And what he's going to do is he says to them, he says, okay, guys, this is a test. Let's see whose God is the real God. And, uh, and so he starts the showdown. He gets a whole bunch of word and he says, okay, the God who answers by fire, you 850, you pray, I will pray. The God who answers by fire, he's the real God. And uh, so this happens. The prophets of Baal and Asherah do their thing. Elijah prays, but before he prays, he tells the guys, guys, Let's make this a little bit more difficult. We're going to see who's really God. Pour water. So they saturate the wooden water. God comes, answers by fire. What happens next is crazy. The crowd is in uproar. They see what's gone on. They're like, this is crazy. Elijah, this looks like a superhero. They slaughter all the prophets of Baal. There's bloodshed. It's, it's wild. Like, as a young person, you're reading this, you're like, this is the greatest story I've ever read. Like, it's, it's an amazing story. It's got miracles. It's got courage. It's got blood on the streets. It's like, yeah, sorry. I apologize. I was young when I loved that story. But what, what happens after this moment? If you carry on reading, you go to 1 Kings chapter 19. What you get is you get Elijah in a cave all by himself. Not a single person in Israel is converted by this moment. No one has changed. No one has grown spiritually. In fact, Elijah has fled for his life after this moment. He is left in a cave crying out to God, fearing that he's going to die. What you think is going to radically bring transformation to a people doesn't actually do it. Then you get a guy called Ezra. 
Now, I don't know how many times you've heard anyone preach a sermon on Ezra. In my lifetime, and I've been to church a lot, and uh, in my lifetime, I don't think I've actually ever heard anyone preach on Ezra. And there's a reason why no one preaches on Ezra. He's pretty boring, actually. Like, if you read his story, you read, you're like, what does this guy do? He is, like, so boring most of the time. In fact, when you read Ezra and Nehemiah together, they're kind of like one book. When you read them together, you realize Ezra as a character is dwarfed by two other characters in that story, by a guy called Zerubbabel and a guy called Nehemiah. Because Zerubbabel builds the temple, Nehemiah rebuilds Jerusalem, and what does Ezra do? He reads the Bible. And you're like, cool. Like, Ezra's not the cool guy in the crowd, you know? Like, Zerubbabel, he's built the temple. Ezra, he, I mean, Nehemiah, he's built the city. He's like this great leader that has rejuvenated the, the life and the values of, of, of the city. And you've got Ezra who reads the Bible. But, you know, over the last few years, I've been pondering this story a lot. And Ezra has become kind of a hero to me in the last few years, this unknown kind of guy in in the history of the Old Testament has become kind of a hero because what Ezra does is Ezra shapes a people. What happens is, is they say in Jewish history that the word Jew first comes from the era of Ezra. The Bible in its Old Testament formation comes because someone by the name of Ezra, guarded the scriptures and kept the scrolls during a time of exile. And then Ezra, a master of the scriptures, gets up in a time when a broken, disheveled, culturally struggling people find their way back to their homeland and don't know how to live. What happens is they get a guy called Ezra to get up and read the Bible, and it says that the people were revived. Such great joy came into the city. And you see, we struck with this dilemma. The dilemma is the Ezra-Elijah dilemma. The dilemma is what is going to form you and I spiritually? What is going to give us spiritual vitality? What is going to shape us and change us into the people of God? And often we think the thing that we need is a spiritual experience. We need an Elijah moment. So sometimes we come to church and we think, you know what I need to get my spiritual life on the right trajectory? You know what I need to get me from here to here, to get me moving in the right direction? I need this great encounter. We think we need an Elijah moment. But what happens is those Elijah moments are somehow dissatisfying. They serve their purpose God is the God of Israel. That was the purpose. Who is God in Israel? God showed himself he was God in Israel. But they are dissatisfying in terms of changing us into the people of God. But the thing that we think is ordinary, a little bit pedestrian, a little bit plain, the Bible, reading the Bible, waking up in the morning, opening up the scriptures, eating this book as Grant preached last week, getting it in day after day, this thing that seems so ordinary is the thing that is so transformative. It's the Ezra-Elijah dilemma. 
It's this dilemma of how are we going to become the people of God? Well, the answer is quite simply, we're going to become it through his word. We see this in John 6. If we jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we get to John 6. What happens in John 6 is there is a crowd that is following Jesus. And why are they following Jesus? Because he's giving them food out of nowhere. Someone gives them two loaves of bread and, I mean, two fish and five loaves of bread, and all of a sudden he feeds a crowd. People are like, this guy is unbelievable. If you are hungry, follow Jesus. He can manufacture food out of nowhere. So people are following. And then Jesus starts teaching. He starts telling them the word of God. And what happens? Almost all of them leave. But then his disciples are left there. And he says to his disciples, aren't you going to go as well? And what does Peter say? He says, Jesus, where shall we go? Because only you have the words of life. Peter understands that what we need to live a spiritually vibrant life is not the miraculous moments of multiplication of food. It is the words of life that feed the soul, that feed our spirits. Now, God's word has always been central to God's people. We see it right from the beginning. And God said, let there be light. Creation comes into being through God's word. We see that the formation of God's people through the call of Abraham comes through God's word. He speaks Moses' mission. And then the formation of the people of God into the people of God comes through God speaking on Mount Sinai. In fact, we see the greatest person in the history of the world, the person who is central to the plan of God, God himself, Jesus Christ, is called the Word of God. The Word is central to God's people, central to the life and the formation of the people of God is this idea that God speaks and we have heard his voice. And we have heard his voice in his word, in the scriptures. So how does the Bible form us? How does the, the word of God shape us? Um, and I, I've got five brief points that I'll share. And hopefully this will, will uh, stir our thinking. But the first is the idea of of the internal versus the external voice. If, if you listen to our culture right now, the internal voice is so important to becoming who we should become. Find your truth, listen to yourself, become your or, uh, authentic self, or uh, in Morikondo kind of thingy, if it doesn't spark joy, throw it out. Be, live your own happiness, you know? So from like if you follow the minimalist movements to tidy living movement to the health movement, we are ingrained in this importance of the authentic self, of living your truth, of listening to your internal voice. But Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all else. 
there is a problem with our own internal voice. I don't know if you've noticed this sometime, but sometimes listening to yourself is not that great. If you ever woken up tired, maybe feeling slightly sick, the last thing you want to do is listen to your internal voice. It's sometimes not saying the best things. Sometimes looking in the mirror, it's not saying the best things. The internal voice, the Bible says, actually leads us on a path of deceitfulness. It ultimately leads us to a place where we make ourselves God, where we become the most important person in our own stories, which leads us to a place of self-centeredness, selfishness, a world of pain. I am, you can do this to someone. If you take someone and you put a blindfold on them, uh, and you take all sound out of the room or all kind of things that they can touch and you try and get them to navigate to a point, they, they won't get there if you spin them around. They just won't. They have no way to orientate themselves. And that's because we orientate ourselves on external stimulus. We orientate ourselves on the things we're able to see and on the things we're able to hear. In the same we try and go about living our lives, trying to find the direction for our lives in which we should go based on our internal voice. We are disorientated. We need external stimulus. We need an external voice. And the Word of God is the ultimate source of external authority in our lives. It is God's voice the one who created us, leading us in the right direction. The other thing that the scriptures do to form us is it shifts the direction of our spirituality. What happens when you put the word of God in the center of your spiritual life, you shift the direction of your spirituality from me trying to do things for God or me trying to orientate myself towards God or me trying to figure out a spiritual life that's going to walk in God's kind of direction to God speaking and directing us. It goes from us to God to all of a sudden when, when the word of God is central, it is God's voice becoming the commanding authority, the, the directing authority in our lives. When we read the scriptures and we submit to them, we change the direction from us being the authority in our spirituality, from us being the directors of our spirituality to God being the director, the one who shapes, the one from whom emanates the life of our spiritual life. The third thing the scriptures does is it gives us a new belief system. It gives us a new value system. Um, so in, in Romans 12 verse 2, uh, Paul talks about this. He says, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds change through the scriptures, through the word of God. It, shape, it gives us a new system of belief. It gives us a new system of values, what we should value, what is important. By bringing the scriptures into the center of our spiritual life, we embrace a new belief system, a new value system. The fourth thing that it does is it saturates us in sovereignty. It saturates us in sovereignty. 
In Acts, you read that the disciples would say this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. It was a political, politically subversive statement. It was, uh, you know, the disciples were challenging the authority of Caesar in one sense. But what were they doing? They weren't saying that Caesar is no longer the emperor of Rome. What they were saying was that God is sovereign despite Caesar being in control. If they get killed by Caesar, if they have to be martyred by the political system of the day, it doesn't change the fact that God is still king. When Peter uh, says to us, he says, um, sorry, Paul says in Timothy, he says, you know, you don't determine when and where you should go somewhere because God is the person who has set the times for us. It's like, what is he doing? He's challenging the fact that God is sovereign over time. He's sovereign over seasons. He's sovereign over all, all authority on this earth. By sovereign, I mean that God is ultimately in control. The scriptures take us from this tangible world, from the ebb and flow of our emotions, from having a bad day or a good day, from our moody boss, from the anxiety of crime in our nation. It takes us from the reality of all of these kind of things that we face, and it reminds us that God is still on the throne. It saturates our life in sovereignty. The fifth thing that the scriptures do is it gives us faith in Christ. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing the message of Christ. When the apostles preached in Acts, it says that when they preached, they preached the word of God. They preached the message of Christ. The scriptures tell us about Jesus they proclaim to us day in and day out as we read them the message of Christ. They give us faith in Him. And these five things, and there are others, shape us. They shape our spirituality. But I, I want to end with one passage in Deuteronomy 6, verse uh, four to seven and this if you were or even now are a Jewish person this would be the most important passage in the Old Testament it is a passage that is called the Shema and uh, uh, you may recognize it 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 says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 it says hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This was called the Shema. It was a practice that would be done by every single Jewish person twice a day. Some people did it more. They would pray this prayer. They would say this statement. They would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, 
your soul and your strength. Jesus says that this is the greatest command, to love God and to love your neighbor. But what's profound about this? The thing that I, as I've thought about this over the last year or so, as I pondered on on this passage, what's really profound is that their spirituality, the spirituality that Jesus was steeped in, is steeped in one specific activity. It is the activity that this passage gets its name from, Shema. And that Shema in Hebrew means this, listen, hear. What is that most important activity? The activity that is going to shape the lives of the Jewish person, the activity that was going to shape the culture of the people of God all the way up to Jesus was the activity of listening. But not just listening to anything, listening to the word of God. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The voice that thundered from the Mount, Mount Sinai that thundered, that spoke to God, to Moses and his people, the voice that said, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Listen, hear his voice. Our spiritual life, yours and mine, is shaped by this activity, this activity of listening. You and I are listening every day some of us are listening to the Kardashians or watching them. I don't know which. But um, some of us are shaped by the TikTok or reels that we watch over and over. Some of us are shaped by the stuff on Netflix. Some of us are shaped by our Twitter accounts. But the call of God's people is to be shaped by His Word. God's people are a people that believe he has spoken and that his voice is the commanding voice in all the earth. And because he has spoken, we should listen. Shema. How do you live a spiritually healthy life? Well, that answer is a little bit more complex than I made out today, coming to church. There's a whole things to that. But central to all of the activities that we do is the activity of hearing, the activity of listening, the activity of making the word central to our lives. Don, can I ask you to come up? I know this hasn't been that practical, and uh, I'm pro- I think I'm preaching in about five weeks' time on it or four weeks time, whenever it is, on very practical how to read the scriptures. But my hope this evening is that some part of us would be challenged that if we want to live a spiritually healthy life, we will shift from just seeking spiritual experiences to submitting ourselves, getting in on the activity of listening to the word of God. We go through ups and we go through downs. Some of us are going through really hard times, even right now. But the thing that holds us through, holds us through all of life, through all the different emotions that we have, 
is the fact that God in his sovereignty is proclaiming his voice into the earth and we as his people are hearing and being moved by that. Can I pray for us? Can I ask us to stand? We'll go into a song of worship now. But I I wanna pray. I wanna pray for two things. I wanna pray number one for our own Bible reading times because I hope if anything of what I've said has changed you, I hope that this week you will pick up the scriptures. For some of us, you probably haven't read the Bible in a long time. My hope is that you will download an app on your phone or even better, get a proper Bible and put your phone in a drawer so it doesn't distract you and begin to read. And I'm gonna pray that as you read, the vitality that came into God's people while they heard Ezra speaking will come into your own spiritual life while you read his word. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is not silent. You are not a God who is distant. You are not a God who is far away. You're a God who speaks who has spoken and who continues to speak through your word, through Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel, through us reading the Bible. And I pray for every single one of us, Lord. I pray that for for us as we go into the week, as we open up the scriptures, as we read them, I pray, Lord, that those words will be life to us. That as the words come, we won't be like the crowd that walked away. We would be like Peter and the disciples that said, where shall we go? For only you, Jesus, have the words of life. And as we stick to you, your words will be life and nourishment and health and joy and peace in our souls. And I pray for some of us this evening, as we've heard about you, Lord, that you are a God that speaks. As we've heard about your word, I pray, Lord, that you would draw our hearts to yourself. I pray that you would show some of us the glory of Jesus, what he has done, and the graciousness of God, and that you would draw us into your loving, kind embrace. In Jesus' name.